Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantel. I'm Tisa. And this week we have a special guest, Rima. Hello. Hi. And Rima's going to be talking to us about her PhD research. Uh, so, Rima, do you want to kick off? What are you, what are you studying? Yeah, hi guys. Um, thanks for inviting me, first and foremost. Our pleasure. Um, thank you. <laughs> so I'm in my fourth year doing my PhD at City University of London on a Q-step scholarship, which is the Quantitative Methods um, Centre at City. And um, so I'm doing mixed methods research into class um, and race subjectivities across the British South Asian middle classes. So what's what's the subjectivity? Mm. (laughs) What does that mean? Um, So um, it's kind of employing a doubled research practice in the sense that when you're interviewing or researching um, identities, predominantly identity research, Um, you're asking people um, not kind of what class you are, all these sorts of things. You're asking them, what does class mean to you? Mm-hmm. How would you categorise it? What do aggregate class categories, kind of what kind of relevance do they have to your life? Where would you place yourself in the social hierarchy? And all those sorts of things. And then gradually through these interviews or through your analysis, because um, I'm using quant data as well, you're asking people um, to, to tell you about instances or to glean from them instances of where they think these sorts of issues have structured their lives, um, have have impacted on their lives, how their attitudes and behaviours are dependent on these subjectivities, as well as on those structural positionings. So basically, yeah, you're looking at through, like, so quant and quantitative means that Rima's using, like, numbers Sorry, and statistics. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Whereas uh, us three are more into the, like, hmm, like... Let's, let's just, talk about this. Yeah, let's <laughs> just have a long conversation about it. Which I, I love um, slightly more. But no, I love numbers as well. But if you're trying to get PhD funding, there's a lot more money in quantitative. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so you're asking people basically what they think their class is rather than ascribing them, like what sociologists Mm. have traditionally done. It's been like, okay, we've decided this is what class Mm. is. Which box do you tick? If you've ever filled in a census or something, you will know what these questions are. So it's looking at that discrepancy between, okay, so this is where I would place you based on indicators of occupation, which is kind of how I operationalise or frame objective class. And then I ask them, but what does it mean to you? You know, those sorts of things. Um, and I'm looking within sub-ethnic groups within South Asian, um, the South Asian population. So I'm comparing Pakistanis to Bangladeshis to Indians, um, different genders, different religious traditions as well, some secular, some atheists. So there's a lot of richness in there. That's really good. How big's your sample? Mm. My uh, qualitative sample um, was, so I did 25 interviews and I, I'm analysing 20 of them. Mm-hmm. I decided to stick with second generation because I wanted to know what it was like. Second generation British Asian. So, yeah, yeah, so born in this country or came over when they were babies, basically, yeah. just to, to know what it's like to um, try and have a career from, from the very, very off in mm-hmm. this country as an ethnic minority. Um, and to go through schooling and, and all those life processes um, and you know what it means to be British as well as what it means to be an ethnic minority, a racial minority, a religious minority. Um, but obviously with the, the quant sample, I've got um, a good kind of few hundred with the quantitative data sets that I'm using, um, so I can be a bit more kind of rigorous with my analyses through that. But the problem with intersectional research as well is that you kind of you've got um, you've got to kind of match up those categories, so you can't go too kind of 
Sorry, what do you mean by that? So, uh, for example, with qualitative research, um, I might have one or two kind of female Muslim Bangladeshi lawyers in the sample. So I can't really make huge kind of generalizations about their specific experiences. But what I can do out is draw, the spe- draw out the speci- specificities of their particular positioning. Yeah. So, yeah, no, this is a big difference for our listeners between kind of qualitative research and quantitative research is that... For the numbers side, you need lots of people to do it. And this is a big problem for kind of like statistics on race Mm -hmm. and ethnicity in this country. It's usually the samples, the number of people they have statistics on are not big enough to do the same kinds of analysis as you would for like white people, basically. Which I think is a kind of methodological symbolic violence, really. What I mean by that is... um, I would have used more recent ethnic minority data if the data says that had been continued and they hadn't. What do you mean? Loads of other data sets have been kind of understanding society, yeah. which is a big, big household data set. <laughs> British social attitudes yeah. is still going. Where's the ethnic minority British election study? Where's the citizenship survey, which had its Muslim boost? And there's no, there's there's none of that exists. There's no more recent data than 2011. Wow. wow. For me to use where I As can in, that's the sense. look at identity measures... 2011, no, that was the, d- the time the data sets were published, the ones that I'm using. Oh, I see. Yeah. And those, so not even the research wasn't done in 2011, the data set was The published. research was probably done 2010, just after the election oh, okay, of 2010, okay. yeah. But still, yeah, that's yeah. getting on for, you know, yeah, a really, while ago. Yeah. But then again, and I, I, I held an event um, in Birmingham the other week on intersectionality, and Akwugo Emma Julie, who's a uh, researcher the politics of women of colour in Europe, she did say, um, use what you have and try and make the best of it, and try and draw out as much as you can, and don't think, because I'm an intersectional researcher, I can't use quants. People are going to say, that's not valid, that's not reliable, but do what you can with it, and that's what I'm doing, Um, and I'm acknowledging the limitations, but I'm trying to be, um, you know, as flexible as I can with quant data. Yeah. No, I mean, that sounds really good. Can you you tell us a little bit more about the Mm. class element in your research, and what theories of class or theorists of class at the moment in sociology, where they're going wrong in your opinion. So I think one of the big issues I have is the way the middle classes are framed. Um, Very rarely are they discussed in a lot of the big work from kind of Bourdieu and Savage et al. um, in terms of the whiteness Mm -hmm. and how that interacts with the middle classness um, to... uh, secure privilege. So they talk about the middle classes as engaging in kind of exclusionary practices. So they go and they fill their kids in um, these great schools, these great grammar schools, these great private schools. Every day after work, they're doing a new after school club. Um, And I'm thought, well, you know, what do the South Asian middle classes do? What did that first generation do to get their kids to be professional, managerial kind of um, middle classes? And I say that in air quotes. Um, so I want to see whether what Savage says about how the middle classes act and what the middle classes do, whether that translates to the sort of practices ethnic minorities engage in. And I like to say, you know, it's looking at people at the juncture of privilege and prejudice. Mm-hmm. But that privilege is so dampened, I think, by all of these in- oppressions, intersectional oppressions and... Um, you know, a lot of my research is about how they have to negotiate these Racism. middle class mm. spaces yeah. and the whiteness of it and the masculinity of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's very interesting, though, that 
uh, these oppressions only came out when you know they were giving me anecdotes when I was asking them what class are you when I was asking them about their race experience about their ethnic minority experiences they were like a lot of them were like I think it's been a good thing you know I think I've benefited from positive discrimination. You know, I think I've persevered. I think I've done really well. And oh, God, yeah. um, so, I mean, this is where qual is really interesting to kind of tease yeah. out that yeah. sort of stuff. Um, so in the interviews, they would say, like, I've had this experience of racism, but they wouldn't necessarily yeah. attribute that to, like, structural... So there was, yeah, one woman, she's a lawyer, from a middle-class background, a fairly middle-class background, Indian woman, and she was saying, um, I've never felt racism in my job. I've never felt it. And she was saying it quite quietly because I think she thought, oh, okay, God, she wants to she wants to hear some awful, awful kind of, mm. you know, yeah. things that have happened to me. And then later on she talks about, you know, how she's been to conferences and events and she's been the only Asian woman there and how she felt small and all of these sorts of things. Um, so a lot of it is to do, you know, when we talk about racism, when we ask people about racism, what are we talking about? It's not just the... And and this even has to be clarified for people of colour as well. And we're not we just we're not we don't just want to know whether someone's spat in your face. Yeah. Like what may have happened to our yeah. parents back in the day. Yeah. We want to know where have you felt uncomfortable, where have you felt small, where have you felt on your own, and all these sorts of what you might class as I think aggressions. Did you find that people will downplay it because they don't want to be seen as oversensitive? Absolutely, yes. And some people specifically said, if you draw too much attention to your individuality, to your culture, your religion within middle class spaces, such as the courts of law where they work, um, the judges will be prejudiced against you. Yeah, you're, so, you're seen as biased. Yeah, so your, wow. so your career, your very survival is dependent on you not being sensitive and but having thick skin. If you draw your, in, from my experience working in a corporate environment, it's similar. If you draw attention to yourself, you're seen as that, that troublemaker, yeah. that F, that minority, that makes all noise, that's always complaining. So yes. it uses that same that kind of uh, that anecdote, like, can't, can't you get over it? Get mm-hmm. over it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, move on. Same thing they do with women. Like, get over it. Mm. Like, we've gone past that. You've got legislation in, yeah. in, 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 in law now. We've got um, diversity workshops. Mm. Yeah. We're paying attention to your needs. Get over it. Get yeah. on with your job. And it's so you will downplay mm. any form of racism because you just want mm-hmm. to fit in yeah. and this is what you do definitely I'm I think it's really I think it's really interesting how people of color ethnic minorities will talk about experiences of racism and then will describe it as not racist but that doesn't mean it's not racist yes and yeah. I was talking to my supervisors um Emma Jackson and Les back about this the other day like in my field work like what if people talk to me about racist experiences that aren't racist. And they said to say to me, (laughs) well, ask them, to you, what constitutes racism? And I guess that might have been quite interesting in your research, particularly with maybe second generation, who have experienced, as you said, being spat in the face, like that sort of thing. Like maybe like the more subliminal experiences of racism to them Mm. aren't as strong maybe as that, I don't know. So it makes it to one of your former podcasts and Chantelle you were talking about this exact same thing and so I went back to my PhD and I was like I want to fit that in somewhere that even though racism oh, that's, good. Yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant <laughs> oh, yeah. I found a little note oh, on my phone and I was brilliant. like even though um, these are so I talk about the contradictions between them actually saying I've never felt racism and then for, for them talking about these experiences which I would class as racism I thought how can I say as a conclusion um they have experienced racism, can I say that? And I think kind of Emma and Les are right in the sense that you can't, 
in an academic context, um, if I was a journalist, I'll say hell yeah or something like that. Um, you know, that was racism. But what you can say is that um, they've described what could be classed as racist experiences. And this is in contradiction um, with asking them bluntly, have you ever felt racism in your life? Or yeah. how has race and ethnicity played a part? It's definitely how, it's definitely the definition, how you define Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of us, especially the older generation, would see racism something that's um, vehement in your face, someone saying something quite derogatory. Mm. The more subtle forms of racism are harder to pin down. Mm. And then sometimes you don't even you don't even know you don't even know they're happening yourself. Mm. So you're in it. When you're in it, it's, it's normal. You mm. normalise that behaviour. So I've sat in a pub and I've heard people say stuff and I'm like is it, is it worth fighting over now? Is mm-hmm. it really worth having that conversation? Because ultimately, your career is on the line. You have to play the game. And it's kind of, and it how, it's how that interacts with the middle classness of these situations as well. So I've been at really posh weddings um, where, God forbid, um, I ever have to go to one of these again, <laughs> where I've been with a table full of people who voted for Brexit. And the only thing I want to say is why, why, why? Tell me why. Deep down, I think I kind of know why because of, of the way that I feel. Mm. A lot of people voted for Brexit, which was immigration fear and, and deep-seated racism and xenophobia. And, you know, I've bitten my tongue. And, and we've all done it. We're not talking just about how we act in explicitly middle-class environments like the courts of law, like the corporate environment, like... Sorry, when you say middle-class yeah. wedding, sorry, do you mean white middle-class wedding? White middle-class wedding. because no, this is the thing, I think, yeah. sorry, as yes. that we're trying to tease out, is, like, when yes. we... Everyone uses the phrase middle-class all mm. the time. Yeah, like, absolutely. There's, yeah. like, avocado is a middle-class, sourdough <laughs> is middle-class, yeah. you know, like, there are so many yeah. things that we ascribe middle-class yeah. to, but I think yeah. what your research is interesting is is exploring yeah. how... Class and race intersect absolutely, for people of colour, particularly yeah. And a lot of that avocado millennial stuff doesn't really come into it at all, which is yeah. quite interesting. Um, and maybe that's a function of the sample because I only had a few people like under thirty-five. Um, but so, so now I think when I say middle class, I do mean I'm your established investment banker wedding in a Malfi kind of. See, yeah. to me, that's like really class. upper middle class. I don't know, like, yeah. <laughs> to be an investment banker, you have to have a lot of capital yeah, 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 going yeah, on there yeah, that yeah. is operating. What's, yeah. an, what's a middle-class occupation to you? Mm-hmm. There you go, yeah. I don't know. Oh, just to name a couple. A couple of middle-class occupations. A teacher's middle-class. Teachers, I mean, obviously, there's, a, like, teaching can be a huge range of things. And yeah. then in my head, I'm like, for the subjectivities, like, I met a teacher who was working in a private school who described herself as working class, and... Speaking to her, I would totally ascribe her as middle class, yeah. um, except for her accent. Yeah. That was the one thing that I was like, mm. yeah, I can see why in this situation you feel... But that's the thing. Like, she, her dad was a civil servant. She went to a grammar school. Mm. She taught in a private school. You know, she had a degree, blah, blah, blah. She used to... I can't remember what she used to work in. It was something yeah. like PR. Um, but because she was working in a private school where people had a lot more capital than she grew up with, yeah. she did not align herself with them. Yeah. You see, yeah. I... I find class a kind of tricky thing to kind of pin down, especially middle classness. Mm. So, even I struggle with that myself. So, I would find I self identify as working class, mm. but I know my education, mm. my professional background, would lead people to think that I live, in, live, live lead and live a middle class life. Yeah. So, this is the, the problem you have. So, I work mm. works in the corporate environment. So, I see 
other ethnic, other ethnic minorities are doing well, mm. but are they middle class? Yeah. Are they working class still? Yeah. It's difficult. Yeah. It's difficult because it's about how you self-identify. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, so here's an example, bro. Is sorry, of middle class <laughs> professions. So this is middle class bingo. No, no, no. <laughs> I was just trying to catch you this. out. I'm no, no, no. This yeah. is, I do think I think about this all the time. Yeah. So, um, my dad works in a international corporate law firm. He's not a corporate lawyer, but he's a lawyer, and he used to be a partner. And you know, he is. I would say that our family, and like you know, my mum comes from, like, you know, they both went to boarding school. Um, my mum's a piano teacher, but. You know, I would say that being a piano teacher could be a middle class occupation, but because of the lifestyle we live, because of the amount of money and capital, whatever, that my parents have, and because he works as it's a city lawyer, we're definitely upper middle class. Really? Whereas if he were a lawyer working in a law firm in like, you know, just like a local law firm, like a local solicitor's doing like you know, divorce and, um, like, local businesses, then I would say that's a pretty, like, solid middle-class mm. job. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this specificity comes out within yeah. my research. Obviously, you've got... Um, you had your kind of corner shop, curry house, petty bourgeoisie Asians in the beginning. Um, now you've got a huge amount of professionalisation across all South Asian ethnic groups, um, but then you've still got a lot of them going into their own ethnic businesses, uh, their own law firms, their own pharmacies... Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I was going to say. So local law firms, local, yeah. So you see, the, when you looked at the Bangladeshi sample. Yeah. So obviously, Bangladeshi, they tend to be from select yeah. ones over there, so they tend to be more countryside. So the ones I speak to, they mm. would self identify with being almost like like rural mm. in their approach and their outlook. Mm. So how had they mm. had they see themselves? Do they see themselves middle class or I didn't see any kind of rural identities coming out, but predominantly the Bangladeshis, um and especially because a lot of them still work within their kind of um communities as well, even in you know, doing professional jobs. I think maybe one, and that's because he was from a middle class background, um, and from from Dhaka rather than yes. Celeste, identified as working class, or said, oh, "I don't see class. There's no such thing as class. I don't want to class myself as anything. We're all immigrants. We're all in one class." So there was a lot of that coming out as well. Okay. They're like, that's "I'm I'm a lawyer, and I live next to a taxi driver, and we're best friends." You know that kind of. So how can you tell me that I'm a class, or that there is such a thing as class? So yeah. It's interesting, and I think, um, and I think you're talking about it. I, I think you talked about it in a really good way, Rima. And it's something that I really aspire to do in my research is to not, at the same time as us talking about categories, is not to categorise people mm. and to actually really emphasise on the effects of structures and racism. Absolutely. So, like, even though we, it's really important in your research to talk about the middle class not just being a white phenomena. Mm. What the experience of ethnic minorities yeah. that are middle class is different because they're ethnic yeah. minorities, and like actually spelling that out in research, I think sociology is not done enough of. Do, do, yeah. you, do you know what I mean? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's of course like a huge amount of ethnic minority research that's going on, and people do talk about class, and there is you know a lot of great kind of ethnographic research, especially looking at you know. Um, ethnic minority working class communities and all these sorts of things but the middle classness and how kind of race kind of permeates not just white people's but people of people of colors experiences of middle classness um 
I think is really important. It's just really fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the final chapter of the thesis is trying to see how these kind of identifications as working class, how these identifications as, you know, um, um, a strong kind of Bangladeshi Muslim identifier plays into the way, plays into their politics, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's essentially where, you know, those kind of um, problematized categories mm-hmm. um, are trying to play into uh, the structural implications yeah. you know, of, of their kind of positionings in a way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. despite having the economic capital and building up the cultural cap- capital, you're still black or you're Absolutely. still brown, you're still Asian. So, so how do you vote? Yeah. What do you do? So, yes. so are you a Black Lives Matter person or are you yeah. I don't really care kind of person? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. It'd be so interesting to have um, Sajid <laughs> Javid as part of yourself. Oh <laughs> this guy, this guy, token guy. And, um, I don't know whether any of you have heard of Nikki Nikki Haley. No. no. Well, she just did something disgusting. So Nikki Haley. <laughs> is, um, this is something extremely disgusting in the back of my car. No, Nikki Haley is. Um, <laughs> No, Nikki Haley is a, um, she's part of the GOP, uh, part of the Republican Party. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, just didn't, I didn't, I was just like, oh, here's another kind of one of Trump's women. And then I realised, because she's very, very fair and it didn't clock, she's Sikh Punjabi. Right. She's actually the daughter of Sikh Punjabi immigrants. Oh, yeah, I've seen her. Right, okay. And obviously she's anglicised her name, so... I was going to say, is she married or is she No, no, she's anglicised, possibly married, but she's anglicised her first name as well. Can you confirm what anglicised means? Oh, so I think, I think, I suspect she may have made her name sound a little bit more English. Right. Which is fine. My my mum and dad called themselves Sandy and Sam, so (laughs) she's definitely not their names. Um... And, you know, I was, uh, she walked out of a UN meeting the other day after defending Israel when the Palestinian representative mm-hmm. was speaking. She said, I think Israel has shown great restraint um, in its kind of conflict at the moment. And she just walked out when the Palestinian representative was speaking. And I I would be disgusted if any GOP representative or any sort of person would ever do that in a UN meeting. I think it's disrespectful and I think she's downright wrong. Of course... But it kind of it had a double significance for her being the daughter of immigrants, for her being an ethnic minority and a religious minority. This is what this is what we've been talking about a lot at the moment. Me and Tisa have been talking about this a lot. Like basically the issue that we have when people of colour, ethnic minorities, people from religious backgrounds do stuff like that basically, and how it makes us feel and we sort of have this feeling of like we we shouldn't do that. Like we should know better. Mm. Like you be you've been you know what it's like to be marginalised. But that in itself, as much as I agree with you, mm. it is still a product of racism. Like we can't like holding we can't up we so can't they be better. Like as much as that's yeah. vile, and we it's yeah. so it's something that I have to literally fight on like a daily basis. Like seeing Sajid Javid talk like just completely turning his back on Grenfell yeah and, and you're like, talking and about then, like I'm the son of bus driver. and now talking about Diana Rush could have been yeah me. and like Diana but sort of the only one that cares about yeah. ethnic minorities it's like mate yeah. oh my god like so much of I guess that's rageful. the worst thing you like, know he can believe what he wants yeah um but if he capitalizes on his working class ethnic minority background and uses that well and also on other people's struggles for like mm. t- to get him rights, like Diane yeah. Abbott has been fighting for black and uh, like 
black rights, yeah, since mm. the 80s. Yeah. yeah. And then he swoops yeah. in and is like, oh, yeah, I've, I, I've been on the front line too. It's like, it's yeah, it's, it's appropriation of struggle, really. Yeah. Um, that Tories should never call themselves activists. I don't think Tories yeah. should ever call themselves anything other than... Um, <laughs> anything other than career politicians, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult. It's difficult. You don't want to homogenise mm. people of colour. You don't want to homogenise working class people. But yeah, oh, this, I, was, I no, this was an interesting conversation I got into my sister as well. Uh, we were talking about Meghan Markle and the upcoming nuptials, which of course we're super excited about. When is that? Saturday or Saturday? Uh, anyway, and I was like, it really pisses me off that even the Guardian had some article being like, "Oh my God, Meghan Markle's a feminist." I was like, she's not a feminist. And my sister was like, oh, well, does she call herself a feminist? I was like, yes. She was like, well, then surely anyone could be a feminist if they call themselves a feminist. And I was like, you can't marry a royal and be a feminist. Yeah. Like, that is not a feminist. Like, I'm sorry, you are occupying mm. a political position in the most patriarchal institution in the world. Mm, yeah. And I thought it was interesting that, like, in a way, that discourse of, like, anyone can be a feminist totally takes the power out of feminism. Yeah. <laughs> it's Every so frustrating. This yeah. diet ginger beer, which is delicious. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's capitalism. Is <laughs> yeah. Theresa May now a feminist? No. No, of course she's not. <laughs> is David Cameron now a feminist? I mean, like, no, of course they're not. Because, ultimately, what they do harms women. Meghan Markle is not doing... Like, by joining the royal family, you are not promoting the interests of women. Yeah. And there's lots that she has to give up. I don't think they can hold, hand in pu- hold hands in public. I don't think she can have social media. I There's all sorts... Of, I don't think she can wear things above the knee if she wants. There's all sorts of protocols. Yeah, so from, like, a personal point of view to. and a political point of view, she's not a feminist. Mm. Like... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's interesting. But then, you, but then this is the thing. How do you define someone? So, for example, I would say, a cynic would say, when Princess Diana was helping people with AIDS, I'd say, like, she's she, she truly helping them because yeah. she wants to help them. So you could be a feminist and really want to help someone from within the institution, but it's the institution that's the problem. Wait, I'm sorry, I'm not quite clear what you're saying. So, for example... When Diana was so, helping people with AIDS... Yeah, so, I mean, I would say that was quite a radical act. Yeah, of no, all but, the things she did... But you could... But, so what I'm trying to say, so Meghan Markle could be a feminist, but it's, it's the institution that she's in. No, but she's she is opting to be. My point is, she's opting to be in that institution. I know, but perpetuate an institution. But the person, the person that she likes is in that institution. So, so what? So she can't not marry him and not be a part. Well, of I don't know. I think she could not marry him. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's, for example, she wants to marry him, so she gets to, that's yeah. so, so choice. So she wants to get married. She's yeah. marrying someone who's a part of the royal family, but that doesn't make her not a feminist. So she could be a feminist, anti-racist. The institution that she's married into has that history. No, I'm sorry. I totally disagree with you. I totally disagree with you. If you, like, there are plenty of people in history who have not married the person that they've know, been but, in love with. I know, but it's a, it's a choice For political reasons. But, like, for example, so if I, when I joined the bank, and I know the bank's got a historic, uh, a terrible record of racism and stuff like that, but I'm still anti-racism, and I still have my views, but I can't change the bank. I can't do anything about the yeah, bank. Yeah, but the difference there is... But I've chosen you to work for the job. bank. You need a job. I don't. <laughs> like, I can work anywhere. I can work okay. anywhere. But I've chosen to work for the bank, but it still doesn't. But it's, it's, the, my it's the remit of what it means to be feminist and anti-racist as well. Because some people would say, if you if you don't engage in activism, if you don't challenge the institutions, then you're not doing the work. Then you're not the. But then, I, see, I, I disagree. I, the way I disagree yeah. because not everyone is an activist. Not everyone can be 
out on the line. Yeah. So I'd say most people, when you're it's the engaging the mm. conversation, is the activity. Yeah, but she can't. She's literally. This is the point. She's joining an institution where she literally cannot have that conversation. Well, we'll see. I, I don't. Mean, I, don't I, I know. I said this. I said this. I said this today to my partner. I said <laughs> I was like moan about it. Like I was like she could at least like have her hair natural or something. Do something for us black girls. But um, and my but boyfriend then, was like. Well, let's see. So let's just see. But, I'm not saying in any way it's positive but for or me, whatever. It's, it's like but... Obama. When I saw Obama, it's not, it's not, by definition, for example, Obama was never going to change anything because this institution been going for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's symbolic. It's the fact that he got there. That's always enough for me. So with Meghan Markle, it's symbolic. It's the fact that she's there. Yeah, but it's, she's but, not, it's not the same. It's no, no, not I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying the same, but I'm saying it's the fact that they're there. We, we expect too much of these people. Yeah, that's true. We expect that's, way too much of these true. people. That, I don't yeah. expect... No, I'm not expecting... No, let me be clear. I'm not expecting anything of Meghan Markle. If she wants to marry a royal, then fine. <laughs> what I really resent is that everyone's being like, oh my God, this is an amazing political moment for feminism because Meghan Markle's a feminist. Oh, but, but I think that's more that's more the, the commentary on it. Sure, sure, sure. It. Yeah, I don't... That's the thing. I'm not I don't really mean it as a criticism of her as an individual <laughs> like you it's know more how it gets portrayed it's how it gets yeah. portrayed yeah, no, as I like know. oh well we should all be super grateful to the royal family it's like no fuck but off but it's, it's also saying she has to have some worth she's not white and she's not royal or she, she's not even middle class where is her worth her worth could be her being held up as a shining beacon of progress for all the little black girls in the land, you know. <laughs> but you um, know what's really difficult with that, Rima? Because I've been so infuriated. I love how we've, like, slowly digressed into that. <laughs> <the world. laughs> but, like, I've been so furious with the coverage this week of mixed Britannia. Oh. Like, it's so... Oh, gosh, so, I've not heard that. so <laughs> problematic. It's so... Particularly the BBC. The, particularly the BBC. It's been awful. However... And I don't even know if I want to use the however. I might want to just say and or just make it actually a separate sentence. As a young black girl growing up in a town where no one looked like me and everyone loved the royal family, everyone loved like the army and all these traditions and like you don't really fit in. Yeah. If someone like her maybe was being celebrated, perhaps... <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. I know it's the wrong kind of representation and Anna Saha talks a lot about this, about how we need to, like, diversity is about having the right to- sort of mm. representation. It is the wrong type of representation. Mm. As, as Saskia said, it isn't feminist. But the symbolic moment, like, I'll never forget Obama for all his faults, him being inaugurated. Mm. I sat there crying. Yeah. I couldn't believe yeah. that someone on TV that looked like me was being celebrated. Yeah. So it's really difficult, yeah. like... No, so you're we, right. What if Diana had been black, yeah. it would have been a very different <laughs> yeah. cat of fish. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard. But it's, so. it's about saying, okay, so then there's the representation um, aspect of it, and there's a symbolism of having these people, but we can't um, equate this with progress no. necessarily, because that would be a red herring, I think. Yeah. Um, but th- that's what the media do, you know, they, yeah. they take something and they run with it. Um, like they've been going round to all, like. So, I mean, it was the, that video you sent to me in Saskia, Tisa, of them going around, like, Coventry, like, talking to black people, saying, what, what's it mean for you that the princess is mixed race? And it's like... I wish... Did someone say, oh, really don't care? Yeah, they <laughs> did. It was mixed. It was mixed. Yeah. But, see, um, I like what you said to me, Mike. I, I agree mm. what you said. It's not, a bar, it's not a thing for progress, but what I see these things are, it's, it's like a litmus test for attitudes. Because what you find yeah. out, you, you find yeah. out quickly where people stand how far we've actually moved. Mm. Sometimes we've not moved at all. Mm. Sometimes we have. So when mm. Obama became president, you would hear stuff like, blacks, 
He's a problem. He's not. He's not. He's not. He's not, even a, re- he's not even a real he's a U.S. citizen. Or well, the very fact that Trump got elected, you could argue, yeah. is it saying, shows how little progress. Or how much progress, and how quickly people wanted that to snap back. So I'm saying, you can see where we are and see attitudes and whether they're hardening or softening. And like I said, I think in the UK especially since Brexit and mm. with Meghan Markle, you're seeing like the views on, um, what's the word? On race mixing. Misseg- what's the word? Misengination. 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 I could write it. I could write it. Race mixing and like the okay. bastardization of the, of the royal family, the dilution of it all, all these the fears. Dilution of whiteness. Mm. Dilution of white. These fears are surfacing and they come back up. So it's like a litmus test to show you we're right. Mm. Well, and also you get in, the, the difficulty is with it is you get into this narrative around the good immigrant, and I, you're going to mm. talk us to a little bit about this. Yeah. Like, you will only be accepted if you win a gold medal, if you win the Great British Bake yeah. Off, or if you're a member of the royal family, and if that's despite box. Yeah. <laughs> that's from the Good Immigrant book, by, yes. edited by Nikesh Shukla. Yeah. So it's it's difficult because, yeah. and oh, you can see that in the Windrush scandal, it's like, you know, even the way people from the Windrush generation are being portrayed, like everything David Lammy says, like David Lammy's done this amazing campaign yeah. to get Parliament to sit up and take notice. But even the stuff he says is like problematic, so yeah. problematic. Like, oh, you know, these aren't even illegal immigrants. And you're like, what? So it's okay to throw some brown people mm. in jail for not having done anything. But if they're Windrush generation, you know, those were the good ones. Yeah. So... Yeah. I see. I think when the, the wind rush kind of feels feel into that kind of that that generation, that World War Two generation, that kind of idolised and they can do no wrong. Oh, can I just ask? Have you asked what your grandma thinks about it? Um, she doesn't care. Because <laughs> <laughs> your grandma was yeah, wind rush. So, she, but she said she what she done. She had the foresight to sort it out before it got that too far. So she made my mum when when she was about five or six, they had to go and buy passports and right. Things like that. I think at the time she said it was really expensive to do. Yeah, I mean, no, it, it was. Been, it would have been really. Ex- it was, and you can't foresee this happening in 2018, I guess. Well, she, she I, my grand, she's done it in like this is like in the 60s, 70s. She's done it with my mum, so I don't know yeah. why. But again, again, you always brought up to understand that she always told they told me that one one time in your life, someone's gonna tell you you're not from here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you always, need to be yeah, afraid. You, like you need to be prepared. Twenty copies yeah. of your best. Yes. You need to be prepared yeah. to tell you. And this is the concept. Like someone will always tell you you're not from here. Yeah. Whether it's out of anger. Or whether it's where are you from? Yeah, <laughs> the question. They're really from. Yeah, where you know, where, where are you from? No, I was really, really originally, originally. I was really impressed. I was really impressed, and I mean, I can tolerate listening to him because it's quite good radio phone and it helps me understand Brexit a little bit more. But I listen to LBC quite a lot. Okay, not because it's like it's kind of like my own like field work kind yeah. of thing. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's not part of my PhD, but I kind of see but it as like sociology. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting because people do phone in. He gets like this is James O'Brien. He gets like a million listens a day. Anyway, he's been on a journey with race and racism. I'd say, <laughs> and like I started listening to him. I started listening to him a couple of months ago, and he's gone like he's. I'm quite impressed. He's got come a long way. Like he started off talking about like knife crime being a problem amongst black people, and now he talks about like white privilege and racism. And no, did honestly, you read Rennie's book? Well, I hope so. <laughs> I tweeted him loads of times yeah, saying yeah. you should read Rennie at the Lodge. But it's honestly this week he's done sort of like a special on people from the Windrush generation and people that have been affected. 
buy it, to call in and to talk about it. And oh my God, the stories, the stories of people being like, you just, I always knew this moment would happen yeah, where they yeah. were trying, they were trying to help me to leave. Yes. I always knew this moment would happen. Mm. The ki- Like, even the kids of the kids of the, yeah. like, do you know what I mean? That, that fear, and it's brought about that fear. It's, mm. it's brought but that fear back, basically. We've talked about this before, I think, on our Brexit episode, which is our least listened to episode, which I think is really interesting. <laughs> really interesting. <laughs> um, I always look at that, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we talked about, like, Certainly, like if you've ever had the trauma of being afraid for your right to stay in a country, then that trauma gets passed down. And that was the first thing that I think my dad felt, and certainly me and my sisters felt when Brexit happened was, are our passports safe? Am I safe? Like, is having a passport enough? Do I need to do anything else to make sure that they can't kick us out? Yeah. And I think, obviously like mm. that that gets passed down and down and so yeah for Windrush it's not just the people who have actually been deported see this is the thing this whole idea of the what you said like being middle class being exclusionary and all this kind of stuff so obviously middle class being like slash whiteness yeah absolutely so yeah. even even if I follow all the rules I get all the degrees mm. I get all the jobs mm. I'm still not the same yeah. and I'm looking to negotiate it all the time so if I'm in a middle class environment I become the spokesperson for black people, mm. black men. Yeah. So any black joke or black thing on TV, mm. this, I'm the touchstone to that world. Yeah. And this, this is the role you play. So you're only, there's like a, several of you mm. allowed into that world. So in the 12 years I worked in the bank, I think two, including myself, black guys. Mm. 12 years. All the what other about women? People. Women, I would say, I think there was two, three well, not much better. <laughs> but they tended to be of two lower grade, one higher grade. Okay. And so you end up being that kind of, yeah, almost like tokenism. Yeah. Because it, there's enough of you to say that you're not being racist, but enough to assimilate. So you yeah. won't change anything. Yeah. Yeah. So the pool remains effectively white. That's what I really struggle with. In my own experience, Like I, very, I grew up working class from an economic point of view and a social and a cultural point of view. Mm. like, But now, I'm not economically deprived. I have a supportive partner. I have a nice life. I'm doing a PhD. I mm. work in higher education. Mm. But, like Tiso said, I, I have mm. all the credentials of being middle class, but yeah. I still don't feel accepted yeah. in these spaces I still don't like what is I that and how has that yeah. come out in your research well that's kind of the primary finding I guess so you know even if um some people would said yeah yeah you know you can call me middle class it was it was never a, it was never an identity it was an instrumental yet the, the descriptive term the criteria fit me in a sense because there is this underlying sense of precarity that you have as an ethnic minority especially coming from an immigrant background compounded if you coming from a working class background um, that you always have to prove yourself and a lot of what came through my research was this kind of um, work ethic narrative this citizen worker trope where being British um, and also for these people for for my sample being um, middle class um, means kind of um, working twice as hard but however close you get to whiteness however close you get to middle classness it's, you're never going to be it so which is why I'm uh, in a paper that I'm presenting at the ASA in, in August what's the ASA? 
Oh, sorry. That's the American Sociological Association Conference. So when you present a paper at a conference, it basically yeah. means you're giving a talk. Giving a talk, time. yes. <laughs> yeah. um, sorry. Um, and so the theme of that is about feeling race. So it's the emotions of race. Um, uh, and so what I'm trying to do there is destabilise the idea of the sort of capital and the sort of middle classness that ethnic minority people have is extremely distinct in both its look um, its feel and the consequences of it to the white middle classes. Can you talk about more about that? So, for example, um, you've got... Uh, I think the conclusion of that paper actually is extremely intersectional, and I'm looking at how um, two women in specifically in my paper who talk about how much of a struggle it is being an Asian woman within a traditionally still kind of working class context, so going home to your parents, one of them whose parents live up north, and, and being expected to do all the cooking even though you've got work to do that evening. You know, um, having um, no one in the community support you going to university because of, you know, they're telling your father she's going to marry a white man, she's going to do this, who does she think she is? So these sorts of tropes, having to negotiate these. Um, but the way that they deal with it, the sort of reflexivities that they use, these critical meta-reflexivities, and by that I mean the sort of, um, the sort of ways that they negotiate, um, but retain their culture, but negotiate those limiting factors to be successful... And I'm not going to say to be middle class here, but to be successful and to have their own career and to forge a new model of being a middle class ethnic minority are astounding. Mm. So that's what I'm trying to kind of tease out with that. So my question is, so I would agree with you. I think today in 2018 is about forging new identities, forging new things that are separate from traditional models, yeah. like new, new ideas of being middle class, Absolutely. new ideas of being Asian, new yeah. ideas of being black. That's the way forward. However, my, my issue is, how, how, how influential are mm. these new models? Because mm. ultimately, white middle classes mm. is are the keys of the kingdom. Absolutely, yeah. So, do you have to give up some of your mm. new identity, to trade it in to get into mm. this club? Because this club mm. is where it gets you into jobs, yeah. Gets you to the bigger house, gets you all the stuff mm. that you want, yeah. So, is this? Does that, do you is, see is a trade? Is it better to play the game? Yeah. Um, I've, I don't have a normative view. I don't, can't say whether it's better or it's worse. And what I can say, though, is what my respondents did is um, they played the game. Some of them were cognizant of it. Some of it, them hated it. And some of them just said, this is an occupational hazard and it's what I have to do. Their skin um, colour is their occupational hazard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and having to negotiate racisms, having to negotiate... One um, respondent said, uh, she's from a working class background, Bangladeshi woman, and she says um, H instead of H. Yeah, it's a problem. And I thought it was H as well, um, but apparently it's H, yeah, and, it's and H, that's yeah. that's the mid middle class. Well, we were, yeah, we were told off at oh primary school for saying H. H yeah. James O'Brien was talking about this today on LBC. Really? Sorry. <laughs> oh my God, not James O'Brien. Are you trying to get him to like retweet us boyfriend. or something? <laughs> And then she she was saying, Yeah, and, and this this old lady at my work and she she did actually say this woman was fairly white and middle class, was telling me that it was H not H, it's H not H and all these sorts of things. And so it's just navigating that on a daily basis and you know it's That is the story of my life. It gets never under, like never say things under, right. Your skin and it makes you it makes your skin crawl and even though I went to a grammar school, I've got people who say to me, um, you know, that's not the right way to write that. That's not how you use this. Why don't you use an Oxford comma, that sort of thing. And I'm like, that's I went to a grammar school, hello. That's not me at all. <laughs> I was like, oh. Side 
dice. An Oxford comma is when you have a list, right? And so you're going to say, like, Rima, Tiso and Chantal were doing a podcast. And Oxford comma is when you say Rima, comma, Tiso, comma, and Chantal. So traditionally, yeah. English grammarians, people who do grammar, <laughs> don't like the Oxford comma because they're like, oh, it's an Americanism, oh, it's horrible. <laughs> But if you don't use it in certain contexts, it can change the meaning of a sentence, basically. Right. There's loads of jokes about like it on the internet. Like eats, shoots and leaves. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, well, is that way? Eats, shoots. So it's eats, shoots and leaves. Or yeah. eats, shoots, and then if you've got the comma in there. Right. I just You just don't have time for this stuff when you're working class. <laughs> well, I went to a grammar school and I was like, oh, hello, I went to a grammar school. I think I know this. But then you realise everyone in there went to a private school yeah. and you're just like, oh. Yeah, the other thing that oh, I've right. noticed a lot, which seems to be very specifically an English private school thing, because I've met people who go to private school in Scotland and they don't know this, Yeah. Um, is the few and less, fewer and less. Mm. So you say there were fewer PhD students there. There was less water. So things that you can count, it's fewer. Ah. But things you can't quantify, it's, it's less. less. Do you know what? Right? Me and Tisa sat here. This is the kind of thing. I think, I think it's super interesting, speak. but... I can care I less. mean, it can be interesting, but it shouldn't... The, the trouble is, is people use this as a way of differentiating people. Yeah. Differentiating yeah. people. Mm. And because middle class people and upper middle class people are obsessed with how clever you are, because of the whole meritocratic ideal that you get somewhere by being clever... If you then use it wrong, you're showing you're not that clever, which shows that you don't really deserve to be there, which shows that you're probably working class yeah. and probably stupid. And so, like, Tisa, I think you've got a really interesting point, because what I couldn't fathom was why this woman, an old white middle-class woman, sitting opposite a young, hijabi, working-class Bangladeshi Muslim, thought that it was okay to say that. Yes, yeah. And didn't realise, didn't even think for a second that it was condescending. Um, and so it's 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 the ordinariness of not just being middle class, but of doing the middle lines. classness, doing white middle classness. See, this is the thing. Yeah. When you're like I said, when you're in it, you're coming from a position of privilege and power. So you don't really that's normal yeah. to me. So when I'm talking down to you, mm. you don't realise that because you're not on the outside. Yeah. I'm on the inside. Yeah. And so I will view you in that way and speak to you in that mm. way. And it's not until you say to them, until you challenge them. And sometimes Sometimes you need to, maybe, yeah. But sometimes in a work environment, that's difficult mm. to do. So whenever I spoke to someone about in a work environment about social issues or things mm. like this, the reaction is very bad. Yeah. Very bad. It, it goes bad quickly. Yeah. Because people don't like to be challenged. Yeah. So my former boss was a... Her dad was a policeman, quite high up. Her mum was a teacher, super middle class. And she had a big thing about working class people and working class people drinking and taking drugs and I'm like well, wow so I'm like don't you yeah because yeah, middle class people don't, don't do drink. these things no, they don't drink and they don't yeah, take drugs I don't there's so much violence in London no, at the moment is it because middle class people like <laughs> do drugs but, or but this is, this is the language so that she's spoken this is how she constructed things this is how she sort of what, and I, like I said once you understand that's the, where mm. they're coming from it, it, for me you know, in a personal level it make, made it a bit more easy for me to understand them and what yeah. drives them yeah and sometimes picking picking your fights, when to yeah. speak, when to say stuff to them. Because, I think sometimes it's yeah. quite good being like, "Did you do you know what how you just made me feel?" 
or like do you know that's made me feel quite small or that's that sometimes that makes me feel like you're saying that to me because I'm a woman or because I'm of colour sometimes or because I like, just do a sharp yeah, I was going to try and bring it up I was going to bring it up I thought maybe you were going to try and bring it up what did you yeah. say, sorry? I said sometimes I just do a sharp breath in. <laughs> the thing is, I try not to be... Yeah. I try not to emit any emotion to it. So I, I ask them a question. So ask them, why did you say that? And I think mm. you get a bit more honest answer because they, once you kind of react, they, mm. they kind of even go on the defensive because yep. they, yeah. the idea of white guilt, oh, have I said so? Have I been racist? No, it's yeah. because a racist. Oh, I'm not racist. I'm so, not racist. So <laughs> I... And, and, and truly, they, they might not truly when be when I ask my dad... <laughs> I asked my dad if um, he hated Diane Abbott because she was a black woman in power. <laughs> what did he say? Oh, she was so angry. <laughs> but that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. And you know, obviously, I would only ask my dad that because I can. You know, yeah. obviously, I know it's going to really annoy him, and I'm doing it to wind him up. Um, but like, also, don't feel sorry for my dad because he does the same to me all the time. Okay. Um, but yeah, like that kind of people being afraid of being called a racist thing but like I've been thinking about this a lot in terms of Brexit because people are talking a lot about how one of the biggest problems with the Remain campaign is they said that if you want to leave then you must be a racist and this idea that like not everyone who voted mm. leave is a racist yeah. as yeah. an individual yeah. and I think in some ways it's kind of I think voting leave can be racist without you being racist mm. as an individual, and I think it is still important to talk about that. Yeah. Like, mm. the leave thing can be... Recognising yeah. that actually yeah. you're... Like, that, I, I could totally agree with that, because the amount of, like, middle-class white leave campaigners that I've spoken to about this, I've said... You mean remain or leave? Leave campaigners. Oh, how do you know middle-class white leave campaigners? Babe, I'm from, <laughs> like, the Midlands. No, I know, like, but, like, the like, people like, are really working class. <laughs> And when I say to them, and also my partner's white, all his mates are middle class. Yeah, but they're all leavers. I would no, they're not all remainers. No, no, but this no, is no, what no. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, so basically, when I've had opportunities to talk to leavers mm-hmm, that are yeah. white, middle class, I've tried, like, obviously, on the face of it, they're not racist, but the act of voting leave, I say, do you know that since leave, I have been told to leave this country mm. about six times in public? Like, yeah. not I'm not trying to put that on them, but I'm just trying to say, do you understand that that yeah. actually fuel like, that act in itself is racist? Yeah. You might not be a racist, but... Yeah. You know no, what I mean? It's hard. It's you will never to... see that way. Like, so when I've seen that girl, same kind of thing. Same, but that's the argument we had. We broke up over. Yeah. But, but she doesn't... You understand. broke up over Brexit? One of them things. Wow. Eh? I don't know. Hey. But I can't. Im- I can't imagine going out with someone that voted Brexit. Is that yeah. bad? But no. I was. I was, on, uh, <laughs> I was on the fence with my partner. He's an Indian. He's Indian. He's a. He's a doctor um, from the same background as me. So his parents. Your parents have, must be really pleased. He's Asian. <laughs> no, so my dad. You know, I was talking about. You're how, on the air. You're on the air. Yeah. No. 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 no, no I'm just saying. My dad would. I think prefer me to be with an academic, though. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, Is your mum pleased? Mom, mother is pleased. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mother is pleased as long as we um, re- live in the attic. Um, right, have children have fast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm kind of on the. I'm, of course, he voted Brexit, but I'm kind of on the fence because he's voted Tory in the past, and I just. He voted Brexit. He, no, he voted. He, no. no, I was no. kind of on the fence. I was like, oh my god, he might do, might do, and he didn't. Thank God. But the thing is, he's very, very informed about his views, even when he's voted Tory in the past. But even someone extremely informed would not vote leave. 
you know, even someone like him. And, he, you know, and it's about really, I need to understand why people voted Leave because I really don't, well, the I thing know is, you said they're not racist, but I just don't get it. I th- we, well. So someone who I spoke to at the time <laughs> would give me uh, an answer about basically economics. And I said, all you're talking about is speculative. It's completely spurious, yeah. yeah. I said, you don't know that for a fact. So, yeah. so what are you basing this on? Mm. But I said, that's fair enough. That's, if that's your belief and that's what you want, that's fair. Mm. I, I can't yeah. tell you. Yeah, absolutely. That. But I think, I think yeah. it is also really important to acknowledge that uh, it can be a racist act, but people might have had other very good reasons for facing leave. I think one of the big things for me is that because the Remain campaign was the establishment campaign, and because it was headed up by David Cameron, if you've been caused real pain by the way the establishment has viewed you, like, mm. you know, maybe forever, but maybe particularly since austerity, or the way, you know, like, um, the way working class people have been humiliated by the government over and over mm. and over, particularly since deindustrialization in the 80s and, like, Thatcher. Yes. You can understand why you yeah. would see David Cameron standing there being like, we are going to have a terrible economic future yeah. in uh, the Europe. Like, if we leave the European mm. Union, being like, "Well, fuck you! I want you to have a terrible economic future because yeah. then you might understand how I feel." Yeah, yeah. Or like, I went to um, a talk by Lisa McKenzie, who is a working class sociologist, and she said that when she was talking to working class single mothers before the referendum. She started being like, guys, we're going to vote leave. Mm. Because obviously she's living in this kind of like academic bubble where everyone was like, no, we're going to say, we're going to say. And she was like, no, we're going to vote leave. Because everyone she spoke to was like, I'm voting leave. Mm. And when she said why, they'd say, like, do you think it's going to change anything? They'd say, no, but I can't bear things to remain the same. I, yeah, I mean, I but this is a very, very yes. interesting debate that is happening in sociology right now yeah. about the post-colonial theorists versus the class theorists mm, on the impacts of yes. Brexit. There is definitely a divide on this, so it's, and yeah. I think and I know where so the divide I know, on that divide. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's interesting, and we all need to sort mm. of take bits from each mm. other in a way, yeah. but. Yeah. Oh, I mean, the working it's, class issue, I mean, that but is... But it's not just working yeah. class people who voted Brexit No, as well, but I know, really but what I want to know is why the middle class people did. Yeah. But Saskia, this I, is the Brexit special, guys. Saskia spoke about the thatch cottages. Yeah. <laughs> I can, whenever, whenever someone says, to, you know, I, there are three specific reasons why I voted to remain. Three yeah. very specific reasons to do with the future of academia, yeah. specifically quantitative research. We rely on a lot from... Um, uh, people in Europe, there's um, a lot of kind of positive legislation mm-hmm. that has come out of Europe as well. In terms well. of protecting workers' rights and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And thirdly, it's because I wouldn't align myself with anything that UKIP would align themselves in, yeah. you know, and um, I didn't want them to have any more fuel to the fire. Yeah. And what I, I've never been able to find a middle class person who voted leave to ask them, why did you do it? Do you have three, do you have three very specific reasons as well? Because <laughs> if you do, fair enough, you know. Yeah, but those specific reasons could be totally spurious. They're symbolic. It's about symbolism. But it's about symbolism. It's about it's about Britishness. It's about Englishness. It's about Mm. who is allowed to be in, who is allowed to be out. And the reason I have one reason why I voted Mm. to remain, and that is because of racism. I saw Mm. it. I saw. I saw it. I saw it come in. Mm. 
And, and actually, but I thought it was so interesting how racism does affect the way people vote. Yeah. As we were looking at this Evening Standard um, infographic where they were looking at how people were going to vote in the London local elections. Local elections. Mm. And they had to vote, you could look in terms of age, and you could look in terms of uh, what they voted in the referendum, and you could mm. look in terms of, like, ver- like cl- whatever, not class, but, like, various things. Yeah. And then they looked at it in terms of race. Yeah. And... Like, the division was just... It was so stark that, basically, if you're a person of colour, you are not going to vote Tory. And if you're white, you can choose based on whatever you want. Like, if you see what I mean, as in, like... Like, Mm. racism was the driving factor in how it seems to be Mm. for people of colour and how they were voting. Uh, Well, a lot of my research, though, is about how Indians, specifically, are are very pro-Tory. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, naturally, like especially odd ones that conservative, mm. conservative views, and some of them brought up in an empire. Mm. Like, if I speak, Mo- and they've been framed as a model minority. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. So if I speak to my nan, so she's from uh, the Grenada, Grenada. So she has very conservative views. So I think one time she's over here. It was on the bus, and she just said on the bus randomly, "There's too many foreigners." Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? She goes, <laughs> These people don't. She goes. They all need to speak English. <laughs> I yeah. said you can't say things like this. They'll yeah. beat you up. I don't care if you're eighty. Mm. You'll get smashed. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, um, they can speak English and they can lots, beat you. <laughs> lots of similar things, and especially within, you know, and it didn't come out within my own research. And I'm really annoyed. I wish it had. But there's a huge amount of anti-Muslim racism Massive. within the Indian Hindu and Indian Sikh populations <laughs> in the UK as well. So um, the Tories, who are clearly extremely Islamophobic, really play, and Zach Goldsmith did it in his mayoral campaign, really play into that sentiment. Uh, Preeti Patel, and you see Nikki Haley as well, her anti-Palestinian arse walking out of the UN, um, (laughs) you know. Even, so, like, when they focus on things like the Gurkhas and... Like they mm. they try to distance off, but Muslims these are the bad Asians. Yeah, and these are the great ones. We we we're the good ones because you know we're fun and we drink and the doctors, um, the lawyers. Yeah, we're doctors, we're lawyers. <laughs> Just like you, we live next door to you, yeah. and, and we we don't cover our heads, and you know, and proximity and to whiteness. Proximity mm. to whiteness, absolutely. Wow. On Should that we, note. On that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Survive in Society with Chantel, Saskia, Tiso and Rima. We'll be back every few weeks, so don't forget to subscribe and rate us.